All right, hey everybody. Yeah, I get set up here. I almost raised my hand and asked to pray for this sermon because of uh, I found out I was preaching on Tuesday. <laughs> so um, yeah, I got you know call kind of late, and so if um, if this sermon works at all, it's because the Holy Spirit, and if it doesn't, it's because Chris called me on Tuesday. So yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he's passing out, you know, I think everything was kind of late in the normal schedule this week, so um, he's passing out the text there, because um, we didn't have time to get it into the, uh, the, what's that called, bulletin, I guess. Cool, so let me just open us up in prayer, I'm ready to go here. Um, just ask the Lord to bless our time. God, we just thank you for, you know, I thank you for every single believer in San Francisco, you know, the city that I love so much. And um, I thank you for every church community who gathers together, Lord, and um, fellowship and preaches your word and spends time worshiping you. And um, so I just pray today that you would bless our time as we read through this chapter in Acts. And um, I pray for your spirit to really speak to your people through me. And I pray that we would leave here with a renewed sense of um, how amazing you are and uh, how much you love us. And so uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> cool. So one of my favorite people in uh, church history, I read a lot of, uh, oh, wait, let me start my timer so we can uh, get out. Corey knows, right? Uh, he used to hear me preach all the time. All right, let's see. What do I have? About an hour and a half. That's what Chris told me. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Um, one of my favorite people in church history, and I read a lot of church history, I just read a lot, but one of my favorite people is a woman, her name is Elizabeth Elliot. a lot of you guys probably know who that is. Um, she wrote a book that kind of made her famous called Through Gates of Splendor, uh, about her time as a missionary, but a lot of people also don't know, you know, she was a classical Greek scholar because she wanted to become a Bible translator. She's probably the smartest person in the history of the church, just about. And she's one of my favorite people, very godly woman. And in the book, Through Gates of Splendor, she kind of tells a story of her and her husband uh, were missionaries. And so this is a woman who is just all in for Jesus, you know. And uh, if ever there was a good person in the church, it was Elizabeth Elliot. And in 1956, her husband and uh, her and her husband and a couple of other missionary, a couple of other couples um, took off for Ecuador to try to reach this tribe that was out, that, kind of an unreached people group. And um, if you've not read Through Gates of Splendor, you should check that book out. But anyway, the short story is that they made some contact and they thought things were going well. And then um, they one day they went to meet with this tribe's people and a bunch of the men from the tribe came up and speared and killed all the missionary husbands. And the amazing part about the story, too, that um, I don't know if it's in the book, but I've seen this somewhere else. Somewhere else, she said, is that um, in the plane that they had where they were getting attacked, they had a bunch of guns. So these guys, they, they let these natives spear them. Hope, I don't want to kill these guys because I know Jesus and they don't, right? And so um, it was not for a few days that they found the bodies of these missionaries. And what ended up happening was actually Elizabeth Elliot and the wives ended up sharing the faith with this tribe. And a bunch of the men who had killed their husbands became elders in this church and helped raise the kids of the... It's a really beautiful story if you don't know the story. But it became a national story because there was an article about it in, uh, I think it was Time magazine. But if you think about that, think about Elizabeth Elliot's life, right? Brilliant woman, Greek scholar, wants to go translate the Bible into this language. So she, you know, she studies Bible translation, all this stuff. She goes down and... 
she's serving the Lord faithfully. And what happens? Her husband, this man that she loves so much, is killed. Right? So the, the wor- world history and church history is filled with stories like this. You know, you've got Polycarp dying. You know, we've got all these stories of like somebody doing something really great for God, and it just does not end up well. And so it sort of leads us to ask, right? We've all had those moments in our lives where we've asked that question of God, what are you up to? And any sort of deep faith, I think, gets to that point where at some point you say to God, what are you doing to me? <laughs> and this is one of these big questions in life, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's one way we put it. Um, there's a, a British actor, Stephen Fry. He talked about it like this. He's a, he's a famous actor and atheist. And one of the reasons he's an atheist is because of this question. And he says this. He says, bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you, God? How dare you create a world where there's so much misery that's not our fault? Right? I mean, that's pretty strong words that he's going to have to deal with someday. But how do we as believers, how do we deal with this question? So there's a few options. There's a few ways we can talk about why did Jim Elliot die? Um, the first option is to say, well, we have to deny God's power in some sense. So there's a really famous book from 1981 called uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People by uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner. And basically, this is the tact he takes. He says, look, in some way, God didn't want this to happen. But look, guys, he's trying his best. Right? It's also, the uh, if you've heard of a guy named Tony Campolo, who was real famous, I think, in the 90s. This was the tact he took after Katrina, where he says, look, there's nothing really in the Bible that says God is all-powerful. That's more of a Greek idea. So he wanted to stop Katrina. He just, you know, there's these two forces battling each other, and he just couldn't do it. So that's one option. The second option is to just deny that bad things really happen, that anything that ever happens is bad. And we see this in a lot of forms of like um, pantheism, you know, where everything is all just kind of one big blob. And so there's not really any good or evil. Or we see this in other forms of like Darwinism where they say, you know, we're all just a bunch of atoms floating around in the universe. So there's really no such thing as suffering. That's kind of a human idea. But this one's not a real popular idea because think about how hard... uh, or think about how hard your heart has to be to look at a kid with cancer and go, yeah, that's just, that's nothing, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. So there are people who take this position in, um, you know, university classrooms, but that's probably about it. The third option is to just think, well, this is happening because God's punishing you. God's upset about something, right? This is the Pat Robertson after 9-11 move where he said that 9-11 happened because America has too many uh, gay people and abortions, Right? He said that on whatever his little TV show is that I don't watch. Actually, I do watch it sometimes. It's hilarious. We play Name That Heresy, you know? <laughs> um, my old pastor taught it. Anyway. So there's a fourth option, though, and it's the option I think that Scripture plays out. And so uh, to, do, to show you what that option is, it's more, it's more complex. So I want to do that by reading Acts 12. And what we're going to see is we're going to see some bad things that happen to some very good people. And we're going to ask these questions. So I'm just going to go through. We're going to read most of this chapter here, all but the last verse. Um, And I'll just start here at the beginning. So verse 1 of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So this Herod, when you read Herod in the New Testament, there's like four, five, six of them. It's more complicated than just, oh, that's Herod from when Jesus was born or the Herod when Jesus was crucified. So this is a guy named Herod Agrippa I. It's the, hand, the grandson of Herod the Great. 
um, this guy was a total turkey, right? He was a frat boy. So it's like um, he spent most of his early life in Rome, hanging out with cultural elites, going to parties. But eventually he racked up so much debt that he had to run out of town. And uh, in AD 36, this guy um, was back in Rome, kind of snuck back in, and then he was thrown in jail for offending the emperor Tiberius. So he spent about a year in jail, and then this new emperor took over, Claudius, who led him out of jail. But here's the important part. When that guy died, Claudius, uh, Agrippa had this childhood friend, a guy you've probably heard of, one of the most insane emperors in history, a guy named Caligula. So Caligula and Agrippa were best friends growing up. And so when Caligula took the throne, he made Agrippa sort of the, he put him in charge of a bunch of stuff in Palestine. Um, and so the thing about Agrippa was, he, this, is, this was his real personality, was he was this kind of psycho frat boy. Um, sadistic punk, right? But when he was in Israel, he pretended to be a good observant Jew. He wanted the Jews to love him. He was part Jewish on his, I think it was like his grandmother's side or something. So he was just a little bit of Jewish. And uh, so while he's there, what he's always trying to do is win the favor of the Jewish people, even though at, at his core, he was actually a Roman. And so he's a politician, right? He would do anything to keep his power. He'd fit in great in America in the 21st century. Um, so what he does is he lays violent hands on the church. So this could be a lot of different things. It's a very broad, uh, broad phrase there. It could be people were arrested. People were probably whipped and flogged. I bet a bunch of people were put to death and executed. But what he does to take it one step further is he's the first one to persecute the church by he actually kills one of the 12 apostles. He kills one of the leaders. So this leader who dies, his name is James. This is, there's a few James in the Bible, right? This is John's older brother. So if you read the Gospels, this is the James you read about in the Gospels. Uh, he's one of Jesus's three best friends. You know, there's that inner three, Peter, James, and John. And so this is one of the first, he's the first of the 12 to die. And so think about being a part of the church in Jerusalem at this time. Things are going well and whatever, and then all of a sudden this persecution is unleashed. You know, and your cousin who's a believer is, is whipped, and your other cousin or somebody you know, your friend is executed. And you're having these prayer meetings and the leaders, you see this strength in the leadership. And so you're, you think, okay, things are going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, one of those leaders then is captured and he's beheaded, right? That's a pretty, I mean, with a sword, that's what that means is he's beheaded. And so this happens all because it pleased the people. In the beginning of Acts, we had, there's this sentence where it says that um, in Acts 2, where it says the church had favor with all the people. So those early persecutions you read about in the book of Acts is coming from the Jewish leadership. But now, here we are about 10 years later, something's changed. And so now persecuting this subsect, right, this little group of Christians is making all of the people happy. And so that's what Herod wants to do because he's that politician at core, at his core, he's going to try to ruin this church that's happening in Jerusalem. And so first he gives James, he takes him and the church prays for him and nothing happens and then he's beheaded. And then he thinks, wow, that was fun, you know, let's do this again. And he goes and he finds Peter somehow and he arrests Peter. And that phrase during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was kind of their way to say like the holiday season. You know what I mean? So our holiday season, we think of Christmas and it brings up all the stuff that's happened to us at Christmas. Well, for them, this holiday season was also the time when Jesus died, right? So he's putting that in there to say, just to kind of connect, you know, that, uh, that what happened with Jesus. So keep going, let's see what happens with Peter. And uh, when they seized him, uh, they put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him 
uh, earnest prayer for him was made by God to, the, uh, to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries uh, before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter now is under guard. You know those superhero movies where they finally capture the bad guy and they put him in that super high security ultra max prison with the round glass that's floating in the middle of nowhere that stops his powers so that there's absolutely no way he could get out? That's the first century version of this, right? He has a bunch of guards rotating in and out so that they won't get tired. He's tied up with two chains, um, the actual chains, not the wrapper. He's put up between two guards, probably chained to the guards so that he can't move. Um, We'll find out in a minute that he's probably butt naked. And they've got guards at the doors making sure nobody gets in and out of his cell. So why the crazy security? Because... In Acts 5, they arrested Peter and the rest of the apostles, put him in prison, probably the same prison in Jerusalem. It's this building called the Antonia Fortress, which was this big Roman fortress above the Temple Mount. And so this is like the supermax prison. They put him in there, and then an angel came and broke him out, the 12 apostles, and said, hey, I need you guys to go down to the temple and preach. So they go, all right, it's still dark. They go down, they start preaching. So then in the morning, the, the guards come to take him to the Sanhedrin, and they're not there. And they're wondering, where are these guys? And they, oh, we saw them down in the temple. They're down there teaching. There's a huge crowd. You can go find them. So they go arrest them again. Right? So they remember. This is 10 years later. So they remember. Here in Acts 12, then, they've got him in this Hannibal Lecter with the mask kind of super max security because they're deathly afraid that something like this is going to happen again. Now, so while he's in this supermax prison, what is Peter doing? This is one of my favorite parts here. He's asleep. I love this. Think about the stress he's under. Tomorrow is his execution. If I had one night left on earth, I probably wouldn't sleep too well. And Peter, there's this added layer with Peter because at the end of the book of John, I'll read this to you. This is Jesus talking to Peter. This is terrifying. Imagine going through your whole life with this knowledge. He says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will, um, you will stretch out your hands, right? And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of uh, death he was going to glorify God. And after he said this, uh, saying this, he said, follow me. So right at the end, before Jesus blasts off back into heaven, he tells Peter, hey, by the way, someday they're going to crucify you too. And then Peter, the rest of that verse is Peter goes, well, what about John? You know, like, that's pretty hilarious, right? These guys are like brothers, you know. Um, So he tells him, someday you're going to be crucified. So Peter now is in this supermax prison, chained up between these two guards with all this stuff around him, probably thinks tomorrow is his crucifixion, right? Crucifixion is no joke. The stupidest thing, I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, um, a lot. The stupidest thing I ever did was when I was in junior high, some of my friends and I got our hands on these videos, these underground whatever videos, and I watched a video for like two minutes maybe of a guy actually being crucified somewhere in Africa. And I like still have nightmares about this. And it was grainy VHS footage. Peter has seen real actual crucifixions probably constantly. He knows what it's like to suffer on a cross. And he's thinking, tomorrow is my crucifixion. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. He has this crazy amount of trust in Jesus because he knows whatever's going on here, Jesus is in control. So while he's sleeping, 
between these two guards the night before his execution, the church is out there and they're praying. And it says that they're, they're giving earnest prayer. The word earnest there in Greek, it's kind of hard to translate into English because what it actually means is like to stretch out for something to strain. Like, you know, when you're watching TV and then a remote is just like a little bit too far, but you don't want to get up and get it. And so you stretch and you stretch and you get it with those two fingers. That's what this is, right? This is this kind of stretching. Earnest is a good translation. Some of your Bibles might say constant prayer, but the idea is they are really into this prayer. And they're probably praying for two things. Okay, they're praying for Peter to be saved like he was uh, in Acts 5. But they're also probably in Acts 4, there's this really interesting bit where the apostles are arrested and then they're freed and they, what they end up praying for is more boldness, right? They don't pray for, to be freed or whatever. They just pray for boldness to preach even if we get arrested again. So this is what's happening. They're probably praying for these two things. And now Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite, gives this kind of uh, illustration here where he says the stage here is set at the end of these verses where you've got these two, there's Herod and there's Jesus and they're going to battle. And they've got their two armies getting ready. You've got one army and they're doing the army stuff. They're planning, they're scheming. They've got Peter in this super max prison. And then you've got God's army. And what are they doing? They're just praying for Peter. And so this tension is building and then it plays out in verse 7, right? In the rest of this chapter. So what happens? Poor Herod, right? Here we go. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So I absolutely love these two verses. How asleep was Peter? He was so asleep that when the angel shows up and the whole cell lights up, he does that thing where you kind of half wake up and just go right back to sleep. So the angel kicks him. And Peter goes, come on, mom, I don't want to get up for school. You know, he's not really awake, this guy. And uh, he tells him to get dressed because Peter is chained. He's there. He's naked. And then all of a sudden you see this, the chains, they just, they fall off. Right. So God is going to do again what he did in Acts chapter five. Let's keep going. Verse nine. And he, uh, and he went out and followed him and he did not know what was being done uh, by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, it came, uh, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of his own accord, uh, and they went, uh, they went along sorry, one street, and immediately the angel left him. So Peter is still groggy. He's like basically sleepwalking. He thinks he's having a vision and a dream. The angel is just walking him past all the guards, and he's like, hey, that was the guy that was guarding me. You know, he thinks he's having this dream. And then all of a sudden, the Antonia Fortress had these two huge gates, one that led to the temple... A mount, and then one that led out to the city. So this is probably the one that leads out to the city. And this gate was, uh, was massive. And if you're reading this story in the first century, this is the most amazing part of the story, is that the gate opened by itself. So we don't really think about that because all our doors just open for us automatically, right? Tesla doors or whatever, grocery store, Star Trek, right? All the doors, they just open. But Luke here is, is portraying this like a miracle. He's being very clear. The people of God were praying in verse 5, and now God is answering that prayer. He is The only way that Peter is going to get out of this supermax prison is through the work of God. And so they walk out, and they're out in the street, and then all of a sudden, the angel disappears. And in verse 11... When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and uh, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's pretty cool. So there's, he gets out there and then he finally wakes up. And we all know that feeling, don't you? When you finally wake up and you realize what's happening. And so what he does is he talks to himself 
And there's this really cool tidbit here that doesn't show up in English. And for you uh, Presbyterians, this is an especially cool tidbit because, you know, we've got the 45-page uh, booklet of all the stuff we're reading today, right? We don't do that at my church. But, you know, we've got this booklet and this liturgy. And the reason that churches do this sort of liturgy is because of how it drills this stuff into us. That's exactly what happens here. He gets broken out of prison. And what he does is he's quoting Exodus, it just, it's like it bubbles up out of his life. Like that's what the whole point of reading the scripture and this liturgy stuff from when God saved the people and Moses basically says, uh, God rescued me from the hand of Pharaoh. The Greek that Peter uses is exactly the same. So as soon as he gets out of there, he realizes, whoa, God has saved me just like he saved Moses, just like he saved me last time. But then all of a sudden he realizes he's a barely clothed fugitive standing in the middle of the streets of Jerusalem in the middle of the night when people didn't really go out at night except for soldiers and that sort of stuff. So verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, whose other name was Mark, uh, where many were gathered together and were praying. So most scholars believe that the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark, John Mark, his mom owned the house that was kind of the early church meeting place. So it's where they had the Last Supper. It's where Pentecost happened. It's where the early church gathered. It was probably a pretty big mansion right near the temple. From, they think that for a bunch of reasons. So it had a courtyard and a big house and kind of an upper room area where they did the Last Supper. So Peter goes, I bet there's church people at this house. So he goes over there. And he's right. There's, it says, I love that. There were many people praying. So the, the whole church is gathered there. So verse 13, when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in joy. She did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. But they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So Rhoda, this girl... I think it's cool. Her name means Rose. I looked that up. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just a cool fact. Um, she's probably the one standing in the... She's in the courtyard for some reason. So everybody else is inside. She's in the courtyard. So she hears the knocking on the door, you know. She goes up and she says, who is it? And he goes, it's me, Peter. She goes, no way, it's Peter. She turns around and she runs back into the house. Now, this could happen for one of two reasons. Either she's just so excited that uh, she forgot to open the door. Or she's not... She believes it's Peter, but she needs permission to open the door. She can't just open the door for anybody because it could be Peter with a whole bunch of soldiers. So she goes, whatever the reason, she goes inside. She tells everybody, but here's the thing. They're inside praying for Peter's miraculous release or something. Then it happens, and they don't believe her. They start arguing with her. Maybe it's his guardian angel, which was not to get into guardian angels, but it was a common Jewish belief that each person had a guardian angel. And so they're thinking, man, maybe it's this guardian angel. There's this story that preachers tell, so it's probably not true. Um, there was a book called Daddy, Did That Really Happen, or Were You Just Preaching? Because a, a kid said that to his pastor. Anyway, so I don't know if this story is true. It's probably not, but it doesn't matter if it's true. It's a parable. Um, where there was this small farm town, and in the farm town there was this drought, and all the farmers were suffering, and they needed rain to come. And so... Um, the pastor calls a prayer meeting. There's one church in town. The whole church shows up and um, they all sit in the sanctuary and the pastor's not around and he waits 10, 15 minutes. He comes out on the stage. He walks up to the pulpit and he says, hey, everybody, the prayer meeting's canceled and he walks off the stage and everybody gets all upset and they start screaming at him and he turns around and he walked back up to the stage and they were like, why did you cancel the prayer meeting? And he said, because nobody brought an umbrella. And then he turned around and he walked away. They were there to pray for rain, but none of them believed it was actually going to rain on the way home. So he's like, what are we wasting our time for? That's what's going on here. So that sounds totally made up. But 
right, you get the point. Uh, that's what's going on here is they're out there praying for rain, but nobody's bringing an umbrella. So the, the way Luke writes this is it's almost comical, right? They don't believe her, so they start arguing. Meanwhile, Peter's outside the fugitive banging on the door. Somebody open the door. So they finally go out there. They open the door, and it says they were amazed. So verse 17, motioning uh, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord um, had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. So he motions with his hand. This, what I love about the book of Acts especially is it's filled with these weird eyewitness details. This, if you read any other ancient writings, this is not like how stuff was written back in the day. But here, he motions with his hand to be, you know, everybody, you know, uh, shut your mouth. I've got something to say here, kind of a motions with his hand, tells him the whole story. Then he says, go tell James. Now, if you're reading this, you're thinking, wait, didn't they just kill James? This is the other James. So this is Jesus' little brother who wrote the book of James. And I, always, I love that James uh, was a leader in the church because he must have thought Jesus was God. By the way, this is a total side note. Because you know what it would take for me to worship my little brother? <laughs> Not going to happen, right? But Jesus' family worshipped him. That's a pretty good sign. All right. Verse, uh, the rest is 17. Then he departed and he went to another place. So Peter takes off, right? He cuts out of town. God never tells us to seek persecution. There are people in church history. I think uh, Origen was one of them who... Purposely, like, oh, they're persecuting Christians. I'm going to move to that city because God will love me more if I get persecuted. That's not really a biblical idea. There's no verses in the Bible that say be an idiot. So what Peter does is he takes off. He leaves town. He's not gone forever because just in a few chapters he's back in Jerusalem in chapter 15. But he, he cuts off. He takes out. Uh, he leaves town. Uh, verse 18. So when uh, day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And when Herod searched for him and did not find him, he, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent some time there. So Herod sent the marshals out to try to find Peter. Nobody could find him. There was this huge uproar. So then the, what they did was they took the guards, and it says they examined them, which was flogging. That means flogging. That's pretty brutal. And in between screams, they asked him what happened to Peter. And then the rest of them, and then after the flogging, they were put to death. So that was probably beheaded, but if Herod was pretty in a bad mood, which he often was, they might have been crucified. So this was common practice in the ancient world is if you were guarding somebody and that person escaped, you either got their punishment or you were put to death. So if you remember in um, the Philippian jail after the earthquake and all the, you know, the doors open and everything, the jailer's about to kill himself until Paul says, hey, no, 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 don't kill yourself, dude. We're all here. And he becomes a believer because nobody would ever not escape from prison, right? And so this is what happens. This is, so they're trying to find Peter and they can't. And so these guards are put to death. Um, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with, uh, this is sort of the next section, but I want to read this too. Um, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they had come with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, which is a great baby name, by the way, Blastus, uh, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of, the, of a god and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Okay, so I'm not going to get all into this verse, but into the details here. Josephus writes about this event too. It's actually outside the Bible. We know that this for sure happens. Um, and Luke makes it clear that this was God's doing. I wonder if it was the same angel. If he just hung around for a few days, you know, uh, saw the sights and then killed Herod and then went back to heaven. Um, <laughs> But the point is, this, this chapter is bookended with Herod, right? This is Herod versus Jesus. 
And how does it end? Not only does Herod lose Peter, he loses his life because of his pride. And then verse 24 is sort of the Jesus wins verse, right? The, but the word of the Lord, the word of God increased and multiplied. So this is a result of all of that happens in this chapter is that there's these statements all throughout the book of Acts. And they're just kind of spread out almost evenly. The word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God. So this is one of them. So Luke is saying that even though this happened, God's plans were not derailed. Right? And more and more people were coming to faith. So from this text, you can see we've got some questions, don't we? Why did God save Peter but not James? You know John must have been wondering this. John's the third best friend, right? Peter, James, and John. James's little brother had to watch his older brother die, but his best friend be rescued, knowing that God could have rescued his brother. Peter is probably asking this question too. Why me but not him? Right? Why did God wait to kill Herod? Why not kill him at the beginning of the chapter and just avoid this whole mess? Right? Couldn't James have done a lot of good if he had lived for 45 more years and discipled people and preached the gospel and sat down and had coffee with people and told them about the time him and Jesus were around the campfire and whatever? You know, Couldn't he have done a lot of good? What about the guards? Hardly seems fair to those guys. They're just doing their job. Jesus breaks out Peter. So he saves one life, but it costs dozens. Right? So what's going on here? We have these questions in our own lives. This is what I said at the beginning. Most of us have come to a point at one time or another where we say to God, what are you doing? Right? What is going on here? Um, Take a sec. Think of the last time. I want you to just think of the last time you said that to God. What are you up to? I don't understand this at all. Um, I know with, I had lunch with Chris this week. I know he mentioned some of that during the prayer about the PCA and this sort of stuff. It seemed like that was weighing pretty heavy on Chris when we were having lunch this week. There's a lot going on here. Um, And he filled me in a little. I didn't get all the details, but, you know. And so what he asked me to do was sort of preach an encouraging message to you guys. That was the theme I was given, encouraging message. So I was like, oh, James dies. That sounds encouraging. Or for me in my own life, my wife and I, Melissa, we are uh, going through a lot because we are foster parents because we can't have kids. So going back five years, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Then we become foster parents and we think, oh, this is great. We have this little girl. We're going to get to adopt her. Grandma pops out of nowhere. So we have her till Wednesday. Right. So, right. We go through these moments where we say, God, what are you doing? So the Bible gives a few answers to this. The first answer is through the story of Joseph. Where you know the story of Joseph, where his brothers sell him into slavery, all this bad stuff happens. He lives his entire life, and then um, he ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt and saving a whole bunch of people's lives, including his brothers' lives. And where at the end of that, he says, You know, us reformed people, this is our favorite verse, where he says, You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Okay, so um, he gets to the end of his life and he goes, oh, I get it. I see what God did here. The problem is that most of the times when we suffer or when things aren't going our way, we don't get to that Joseph point. So to just say, oh, God meant this for good is kind of a cop-out answer because that's not usually that helpful unless you get to the point where you can see how God meant this for good. The second way the Bible answers this question is with the story of Job, which is more nuanced. So basically, the story of Job goes like this. Satan and God are arguing, and God allows Satan to just totally destroy Job's life. And we're supposed to ask, why would God let Satan destroy Job's life? He kills his family, gives him boils, sickness, takes all his wealth. He was a rich dude. Doesn't this mean that God is not a just God? And here's the thing. The book of Job never answers the question, is God a just God? It asks the question, and then it doesn't answer it. And so what happens is the book of Job 
and just saw a pastor buddy of mine posted this after I had written this, um, that Job, the, most of the book of Job is just the world's first rap battle. Because it's this poetry where these guys are arguing and making fun of each other. And um, yeah, in Hebrew, rap battle. And I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so these friends, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they come and they're arguing with Job. And what they're saying is this is what justice looks like. If you're good, good things happen to you. And if you're bad, bad things happen to you. And that's how God runs the world. And Job's answer is, no, 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 I'm innocent. Something's up with God. Something's wrong with God. That's what he says. And so then <clears throat> he eventually, he has another friend show up, this guy uh, Elihu, uh, this fourth weird friend. His answer is a little more nuanced, where he says God can do whatever he wants. But eventually Job gets to the point where he's like, look, I don't need an answer from my friends. I need to hear from God, and I need to hear from him right now. It's a pretty mm, sketchy place to be in life. And so God does show up, and it's a terrifying part of Scripture. Verse, uh, chapters 38 through 41, and God takes him on a tour of the universe. And he says, Job, where were you when I created the world? He's like, hey, do you understand the mating patterns of goats? Right? It's like a weird section. He's like, You're such, you don't understand this stuff. You see, Job assumed he had a wide enough perspective to see what God was up to and then judge God on that. And God is showing him how narrow his horizon is. His view of the world is limited. God never explains why to Job, why he let it happen. He doesn't. All he says is, I'm God and you're not. And I created the behemoth and the Leviathan and I did all this stuff while you were nothing. And so Job freaks out. He repents. He apologizes. He says, I've overstepped. And then the book of Job ends with God being gracious and restoring Job. The book of Job is a literary masterpiece, by the way. It's like from the ancient world. It's probably the coolest book from the ancient world. So what's the answer? Why didn't God save James? Why, didn't, why did he save Peter? What about the guards? Why wait to kill Herod? Why all this stuff? The answer from the book of Job is totally not satisfying. God's answer is, where were you when I created the world? Right? God wants us to know two things. Our horizons are limited. We are so narrowly focused on what's right in front of us and how everything affects us that we don't see how it affects everything else. One illustration is if you think about this with little kids, right? If you have little kids or if you've been around little kids, little kids don't understand why you're not supposed to scream during church. Because all they think about is me and I want to scream right now and it's fine. As adults, we know we have a wider perspective. Maybe screaming during church is not such a great idea. Right? It's, so God is looking at us the way we look at kids. Right? Their perspective is so narrow. Our horizons are limited. The second thing he wants us to know, though, is that he is God and we are not. I actually have this verse, and we read it earlier. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I'm so much greater than you, God says. You can't possibly really understand what's going on, but I need you to kind of put that trust in me. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this. So here's the question then. How do we have that kind of trust, right? Elliot wrote this. The will of God is never exactly what you expect it to be. It may seem to be much worse, but in the end, it's going to be a lot better and a lot bigger. So I like that, but it kind of seems like a cop-out, doesn't it? It seems easy on paper. But in reality, it's impossible to have that kind of Elizabeth Elliot trust in God. There has to be a better answer than that. Right? How can we trust God the way Elizabeth Elliot did? How can we trust the way she would want us to? Right? And the way we do it is we look to the cross. And we do that for two reasons. The first is that the cross gives us perspective on ourselves. The question of why do bad things happen to good people is based on a faulty premise. 
It's based on the idea that there's such a thing as a good person, but nobody deserves good. All that we deserve is damnation and wrath from God. The only time a bad thing has ever happened to a good person, he volunteered. Right? It's never happened. It's not a thing that happens. And so the cross reminds us, reminds us of our sin. It kind of puts things into perspective about ourselves, that we don't deserve anything good from God. But the second thing that looking to the cross does is it gives us perspective on God. The cross is, at the same time, the greatest thing that has ever happened and the worst thing that has ever happened all in one event. Think about that. On the cross, Jesus suffered more than any of us believers ever will. He took the full wrath of God in our place. Right? He volunteered to be Job times a billion so that we won't ever have to be. So nobody knows suffering like Jesus does. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us, that he understands our suffering even more than we do. And so as the people of God, we put our faith in Christ to solve the biggest problem in history, the problem of our sin and our rebellion, and we trust him to do that. And because we trust him with the biggest thing in our life, we should be able to trust him with the things that are big but a little bit smaller, even when they seem overwhelming. His grace, right, the cross is an anchor for us believers. So Elizabeth Elliot says this, our vision is so limited that we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself protection from suffering. The love of God, though, did not protect his own son. He will not necessarily always protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. So here's the thing. God doesn't always tell us what's the greater good, like in the Joseph story. Most of the time, he's not going to tell us the greater good. But here's what he does tell us, that he is the ultimate good. Right? And we can put our trust in that because we see that tangibly as we look to the cross. This is why Peter was sound asleep in Acts chapter 12, facing his execution. Because he remembered the cross. He remembered, Jesus did that for me. I don't know what he's up to, but he knows what he's doing. Right? Jumping forward, Peter was eventually crucified, like, just like Jesus said. Right? He was crucified in Rome, and I bet he slept that night too. Right? I bet he was sound asleep. Because he knew, I can't see in my horizon what God's up to, but I can put my hope on the cross. Right? So for, this is like one of those, you know, the, one of the lost disciplines in the church is preaching to yourself. This is one of those things I've been trying to preach to myself. Because with Melissa and I and, uh, you know, with us and Izzy, I've got some options, right? I can fall apart and I can blame God for everything that's been happening over the last bunch of years. Or I can get my perspective by looking to what Jesus did on the cross. I don't know why we can't have kids. I don't know why we got a kid that we love for 10 months and now we have, a, have her taken away. I don't know. But I do know that whatever he's doing is going to be better. Because my plan for my life is I'm going to earn God's love. I'm going to behave. I'm going to be a good church boy and then he's going to have to love me. And his plan was you're a filthy wretch and I'm going to die for you. And you know what? That worked out a lot better. Right? So I know that this is going to work out a lot better. And so with your church... You've got all this stuff with Chris and the denomination and whatever going on. Like I said, he filled me in a bit. Tough times here. Or you've each got, we just did prayer requests. You've got other stuff going on in your lives. Right? We know people like cancer, death, broken relationships, money problems, marriage problems. There's a lot going on in the world. Jimmy Garoppolo tearing his ACL right when the Niners were going to be good. There's a, that's something to be depressed about. Right? There's a lot of reasons we can shake our fists at God like Job did. And I wish I could stand here and tell you this is how God is going to bring this all together for good. That would make being a preacher the easiest job in the world. 
But I can't because the thing is the Bible doesn't do that. All I can say is our God suffered and died. And through that you were redeemed. And because we trust him with the big stuff, we should be able, that empowers us then to trust him with this other stuff, even when it seems overwhelming. So I don't mean to just say, look, guys, suck it up and get over it. Right? That might sound like this is what I'm saying. But my aim here is to encourage you guys. He is still God. He is still in control. He, where were we when he created the world? Right? We don't understand the mating patterns of the goats. Right? Our horizon is too small. He knows what he's doing. And so what we have to do then as the people of God is anchor our lives in the cross, in the work of the cross. And so uh, one way we do that together, so that's where I'll stop here. One way we do that together then is by taking communion each week together. That's kind of one of the main, wait, let me see here. There's like 500,000 things to do as I do communion. Let me open this up here. It's a little easier in my church. Okay, turn to Appendix B. And then, uh, just kidding. <laughs> Don't tell Chris I made fun of your church in front of all of you. Um, uh, Oh, yeah, so I come over here, right? Um, So anchoring ourselves in the cross, this is one of the main reasons we take communion. Like I said earlier, one of the things that's so easy to do is to slip into that sort of moralist narrative that I've done something to earn God's love. And that's when you get to that place, that's where you get to the spot where you say, something bad happened to me, how dare God, he owes me the good, right? But because of the work of the cross, we understand that everything good that's happened to us is because of what Jesus has done, and we don't deserve any of it. We're a bunch of filthy, disgusting wretches who deserve the wrath of God for all of eternity. But this is our anchor and our remembrance that that's not how it is. It's the the grace that we see here um, reminds us uh, of just how much God loves us. And so there are times where James dies and you feel like, wow, does God love me? And you look at this and you go, oh yeah, totally. Even when I don't remember it, he totally loves me. Right? And so uh, this is where we do the creed now. Yeah. Yeah. So when we stand and do the creed together, let's see. Let's read this together. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, our only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. 